I centered? You're in the center. You're in the center of attention. The center. Okay, okay. How do you feel being the center of attention? I hate it <laughs> so much. <laughs> My name is Lisa Biderweeden, and I've been single since birth. Singleness is not something I necessarily call a gift. Like, I never wrote it on a Christmas list, and it's definitely not on my bucket list, but it is part of my story. As far back as I can remember, I dreamt of being a wife and mother. Some of my earliest memories are of me with my Cabbage Patch dolls playing house in my room for hours on end, reenacting how I'd seen my parents, my grandparents, my aunts and uncles, work out and model these relationships that seemed so fun and so loving, so caring. They gave me some of the most beautiful examples of marriage. How could I not want that? And not just at home, but growing up in the church too. I was surrounded by married people. It was the most normal thing, the pinnacle of life. So expected, such a given. This is just how the order of life works. You're born, you go to school, you play a bit of soccer, you get married, you have kids. Back then, marriage was a matter of when, not if. And I never questioned it because I wanted it to. Fast forward to my 20s and that little girl with dreams kept dreaming, albeit vicariously through about a billion and seven different Hallmark movies. I just loved the cheesy, predictable, happy endings. But I'm not naive. I know my chances are slim of me returning to my small town home, spilling coffee on the love of my life who's become a wildly successful businessman, and taking him to my family Christmas tree farm only to have our first kiss interrupted and then after one hour and 57 minutes fall madly in love. I know my chances are slim because my family doesn't have a Christmas tree farm. But I've always held out hope that I'd get a chance to fully know a person and be fully known, to live in partnership, to witness each other's lives, and to be better together. Like many girls in their 20s, I assumed I'd meet someone at university and off we'd go. But by the time I graduated, the love story had not materialized, and that God-given desire to be in a marriage relationship was still unfulfilled. So I just kept running after all the opportunities God was filling my world with. I threw myself into nearly every volunteer position at my church, youth group, Sunday school, soup suppers, communion, tax receipts, dramas, all the things. Having never imagined any other job besides being a wife and mother, it blows me away how God directed my career path so clearly into a job I never even knew existed, but one that allowed me to grow into such a sweet spot. Outside of work, I've always been surrounded by an amazing community, and so I poured myself into planning friends' wedding showers, and then their baby showers, and then their kids-themed birthday parties. Extra hours were spent with my nieces and nephews for sleepovers, and piano recitals, more parties, and sporting events. Extra hours spent with quality people. Baking and hosting and opening my home to families and friends. I loved it all. The parties, the hostessing, 
the quality time a full life. But as busy as I was with amazing opportunities, I often sensed something was missing. There was a longing. In Portuguese, we call it saudades. It's a yearning for a happiness that has passed or perhaps never yet existed. I was living with an unfulfilled desire, but most of us do, don't we? It forced me to learn how to hold the tension of two things at once, the yes and joy and sadness, opportunity and wanting. By the time I hit my 30s, a number of experiences within the church, ministry, and family had impressed upon me that my singleness was something to be cured. Sam Alberry says, marriage is a conversational intersection with all sorts of interesting avenues of discussion. Singleness is more of a conversational cul-de-sac requiring an awkward maneuver to exit. I felt that. Many times people would assume I was married and then fumble after I admitted I wasn't. The conversations would quickly lead to pity or advice of some sort, perpetuating the feeling that singleness was something to be fixed, meaning something was wrong with me. I can't believe you're not married yet. You're such a catch. Are you putting yourself out there? Just focus on being the best person you can be and he'll find you. In an effort to ease the awkwardness for them and for me, I quickly learned to respond with humor. I used to tell people that my in-laws weren't able to have children and then I'd wait for them to get it. Now, I usually just say, I think it's a supply chain issue. I'd throw out these sarcastic comments in self-protection, deflecting the subject with a forced air of someone who was confidently independent and not bothered by it in the least. But I was. There are so many assumptions made about singleness within our culture and churches. Marriage being the esteemed destination makes singleness appear to be a waiting space, a second place, a step on the way to marriage. It's often defined by an absence or lack of something, being unmarried, and yet we never seem to define marriage as being unsingle. Some days I felt incomplete, like less of a person because I wasn't married. But by the time I hit my 40s, I came to realize it wasn't the church that necessarily believed those things about my singleness. It was me. That revelation that I was not okay led me to counseling. And in the space of a trusted professional I respected, I finally felt ready and safe enough to unpack my discontent. Just three sessions in, she led me through an exercise where I spoke about the lies I'd clearly been unaware I'd been believing for years. These were things I'd never believe or say to anyone else. But when she repeated them back to me, using my name, I was horrified. They were cruel. Lisa, because you are single, 
You are not worthy. You don't deserve relationship. You are incomplete without a husband. You have to do it all alone. The realization that I'd spent decades trying to pretend I was a strong, independent woman who was fine being single was crushing. While living a beautiful life covered in God's kindness, I'd simultaneously been afraid to be honest with myself, with him, and with others about all the pain, loneliness, and shame I'd been holding. I'd believed lies and struggled with guilt for not flourishing with this gift of singleness. But then something beautiful happened. In the place of deep emotional vulnerability, acknowledging my pain, I experienced the most intimate moment with Jesus. He met me there face to face, held me and gently reminded me that there is no one more acquainted with a single life than him. Having lived out ultimate human flourishing as an unmarried, childless man, living celibate in a Roman society centered around families, he knew my anger. He's felt the longing and he understands the loneliness. There's no better comfort for me than him. In that place of pain, it was Jesus who corrected the lies I'd been believing and reassured me that I am worthy and I do have a future worth running towards. He doesn't promise me a husband in this lifetime, but he provides the richest kind of intimacy and comfort on both sides of eternity. So after working to uncover and put words to those lies, I'm now able to claim the truth I know deep down that my worth has nothing to do with my marital status. I'm learning to accept my singleness, knowing it's a valid life stage, not a disease to be cured, nor a superpower with a disaster to overcome, or a stepping stone on the way to marriage. It's a viable, hope-filled option for life, one in which I can experience as much joy, spiritual growth, and fulfillment as those who are married. Honestly, some days the ache inside is deep, unbearable. Other days, I see God's protection and provision so clearly. Learning to accept my story for what it is and finding something more valuable in what God is writing for me and he's using it to draw me into a deeper relationship with him than I ever imagined possible. I wanna be mindful of providing a hopeful vision for singles, no matter their season. I wanna be the kind of person who cares about another's story first, not their marital status. I'm appreciating the families who invite me into their homes and let me be a part of their lives, and I'm working to do the same for others. I'm thankful for the times in church when, even though I walk in alone, I feel a little more belonging because people like Wayne and Sarkis sit on either side of me, living out loving friendships as Jesus modeled, a true family where everyone has a place and everyone belongs.
this is not the story I ever wanted or dreamed of. And yet, I've known God's kindness and I'm trusting he'll keep writing the best story for me because he sees farther, he knows better, and he dreams bigger than I ever could. Wouldn't it be like him? Wouldn't it be like God to use such pain to pull me in close to him? I think so, and I'm thankful for it. And like my friend Sandy says, I'm holding out hope as hope holds me. Thank you, Lisa, for sharing your story today. I think it's powerful to hear about your journey and about how Jesus has met you along the way. And I think all of us here can appreciate in some part that, that weight. And, uh, you know, I must confess, as I, I come up here to preach, and in light of that, I feel the weight. I feel the weight because um, the topic of singleness and discussing it in the church has often caused more pain than it has help. It's often led to places because of, of the stories that Lisa shared in, in the lives of many to a place where people feel alienated and alone. Uh, I have a lot of friends who are single. I also had the privilege of uh, a number of years ago with my mother-in-law working on a project with a theologian who was trying to articulate this with the church. And, and we got to hear a lot of stories about people who experienced a lot of pain along the way. But while I acknowledge that weight, and while it maybe makes some of us uncomfortable to explore this avenue, I think it's really important. It's a really important conversation to have as the church, because first and foremost, we're a body of believers. And if anyone feels that way, if anyone has gone through a story like this, it's, it's valid and it's important for us as the body to surround them, to love them, to care about the things that they're walking through. It's in Scripture. And so we need to talk about it. It's in the life of Jesus. And so we need to hear and think about it. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's also important because it needs to combat a lie. We've painted the world and the church as a couple's place. And that's just simply not the case. There's many singles in our church, probably more than you would even realize. And there's many more in your life. There's people who are single because they're in uh, an early stage of their life. There's people who are single much longer and later, uh, perhaps because that's what they would like, or perhaps it goes against everything that they thought they would have for their lives. They're single people because they've had a spouse who's died. All of us, in one way or another, will have a season of singleness, whether it's one or more than one. In fact, most of us, even if we're married, we will have, at least half of us probably, will have a second season of singleness. When a spouse dies, we have to wrestle through what does it mean for us to live a single life without the person we were married to. So whether we're dating or engaged or married or single, we all need to hear what the Bible has to say today because we need to wrestle with this to see the truth of what singleness is and, and, and wrestle through some of the, the tough things that come with that. And so if you've got your Bible, I'd encourage you to open it with me. And we're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This is a, a section of scripture that is, is probably most clearly 
defined when you talk about singleness. It's something that we can easily sort of step into because it's so clear. There's many other places in scripture uh, that speak to the subject, but I want to come here because uh, one, it's clear. Two, because there's some uh, maybe misconceptions about what's said here sometimes. And so it, it's helpful place to come because it's also written by a writer who was single himself. And so it's helpful for us to, to sort of step in. And so in your Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we're going to read uh, verses 7 to 9, then we're going to skip down and read 32 to 35. The Apostle Paul writes this. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and widows I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Down to verse 32. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs. How can he please the Lord? But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world. How can he please his wife? And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world. How can she please her husband? I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in an undivided devotion to the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, this is your word, and uh, Lord, as, as difficult it is, it is to wrestle through these uh, passages, Lord, we, we just thank you that they are there uh, for our comfort, for us to know you and connect with you on a deeper level. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would uh, hear the truth that's contained within these words, that we would be able to apply it to our lives in a way that is meaningful, and Lord, in a way that glorifies you. I pray that we would be able to strip away some of the lies that have been told to ourselves, by ourselves, or by others. Uh, and Lord, that we would be able to hear your truth. So Lord, we give this over to you, this time to you today. Lord, would these words be yours, not mine. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Have you ever been given a gift you didn't want? Maybe you received the gift uh, and you just thought to yourself, Surely this was for someone else. It got labeled wrong under the Christmas tree. Uh, and you know, this, this can't be for me. As I prepared my message uh, this week, I was reading some books uh, that were reading, uh, uh, written for singles. And one wrote, when they, whenever they see the term gift and singleness in the same sentence, they think, what's the exchange policy? In talking to many singles, this is the frustration that I've heard. Lisa shared some of it in the story today. They've been told that singleness is a gift, which means that they, they feel the obligation to celebrate it. They feel like they're told, hey, you should have joy that life is this way. Or perhaps when we hear it, they think uh, it's more like, hey, you've been given some sort of new superpower. Some superpower which allows you to, to find the single life suddenly easy. Something that you don't have to endure, but you can sort of go through without any sort of bumps in the roads. But to understand the word gift this way in this context, or in fact in the whole of the New Testament, would be to disregard what's really being said. When we listen to these words, we actually have to look at what Paul says and what he means by the word gift. 
Because there's a very different meaning when we hear gift of singleness versus singleness being a gift if we hear Paul's words. So what does Paul mean when he writes a gift? Well, the Greek term for gift is charisma, which is used 20 different times in the New Testament. And every single occurrence always refers to a divine gift given by God to an individual for the church. Whenever Paul writes about a gift when he's talking to the early church, he's not talking about a present that we receive to take on joyously for ourselves. He talks about something that's been given by God for us to not receive, but to in turn put to use in the body of believers around us. Tim Keller helpfully summarizes this in one of his books. He writes, the giftness of being single for Paul laid in the freedom that it would give him to concentrate on ministry in ways that a married man could not. Paul may very well then have experienced what we today would call an emotional struggle with singleness. He might have wanted to be married. He not only found an ability to live a life of service to God and others in that situation, he discovered and then capitalized on the unique features of the single life, such as time flexibility, to minister with very great effectiveness. So when we hear this then, what Paul is saying is he says singleness provides an opportunity which is unique to serve God and people without distraction from the things of marriage. When, life, when you're married, life is different. And Paul says that in these verses, right, that our minds become divided when we're married. We're focused in, in different places, on different priorities, perhaps. And so he says when we're in a season of singleness, we have an opportunity to focus on one thing. We can use our season as a gift to the church, to be used by God to build his kingdom. I'm not saying that's easy. I'm not saying that that is wanted. And I'm not saying that lightly to just say, oh, get over it. That's not what I'm saying at all. This is something we have to very clearly think about. And we have to think about why. Lisa shared uh, from a book written by Sam Albury, and he writes uh, uh, several other things that I'm going to quote through this message. And I think it's particularly helpful because he's a pastor, he's a theologian, and he's a man who himself has been lifelong single. And he writes this, he says, while single people may chuckle at the idea of God giving an unwanted gift, we need to be careful and recognize what we're doing when we laugh and who it is that we're laughing at. Because God is no fool. He's not your uncle who thinks you're 12 when you're well into your 30s and gives you a childish gift. He's the creator who made you. He knows you. He is the one who orders all things and does so for your good. To roll our eyes at what a well-meaning but mistaken relative gives us is one thing, but to roll our eyes at the omniscient is another. If we balk at the idea of singleness being a gift, it is not because God has misunderstood us, but because we have misunderstood him. I think that's really important as we consider this. It's not to be taken lightly. It's something that should be very clearly understood because God is in the mix. 
Now, I know that doesn't necessarily help in this place where we maybe find ourselves in a season of singleness or our lifelong uh, period of being single where we might say, but I really long for marriage. I really want a family. It's not helpful to just say that. But what is helpful is what Lisa alluded to and what we see clearly in Scripture, that God is not calling us to something that he did not himself endure. Jesus was willing to become fully human when he came to earth. He was willingly made male. He was a sexual human being, as we all are, and he chose a celibate lifestyle. He never married. He never entered a romantic relationship. He never had sex. And so when Jesus calls others to a standard, it's not something that he hadn't endured. He calls singles to something knowing full well what it means to live out that teaching. And so we have hope in connecting with the person of Jesus as we go through singleness. So that's sort of what Paul's saying there. But I want to step back from that for a moment and, and kind of jive into some more pastoral uh, sort of practical life pieces of this. And the first one is this. Well, singleness might be for a season or it might be for a lifetime. And some of us just need to, to hear that and recognize that. Some of us will be single when we're in our 20s, when we're in our 40s, or even into our 90s. Others, again, will be single for a time, period, and we might get married later. But then we may find ourselves single once again when a spouse has passed. And so we have to reconcile this text with all of that. This isn't just a message for those who are single and want to be married in their 20s and 30s. This is a message for all of us. Again, this is a message even for those of us who are married because there is a great percent chance that we will be single as well down the road. And so I think what we need to hear is this call of God on our lives at all stages, but in a unique way when we find ourselves single. Our call as people who follow Jesus is to build up his kingdom. Our call is to go out into all the world and to seek people and find them and point them towards the Lord and then to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teach them to, command, them to obey the commands that God has given us. And we're all called to do that, married or single, but there's a unique opportunity if you will when we're single that we can do this unencumbered by our relational status now you might find yourself in this state of singleness and you might still want a relationship and so the question might be but then am i resigned to this like is that all there is and i think that's a fair question i don't say that in a belittling way and but the the answer is i can't tell you only the lord knows it's all by God's design, and it's God's gift for the church in a season, but that, that doesn't mean that we can prescribe a template. What I will say, though, is I don't think that it's wrong to pursue a romantic relationship while you're single. I don't think it's wrong for you to, to seek after a, a husband or a wife. I don't think there's anything wrong with that unless for some reason you feel God has called you to a life of singleness, and he does that. There are some people who really see this as a, a, a spiritual gift for the whole of their lives, and they're, they're 
mainly content in that. And, and if that's you, that's great. That's what God has given for you. If that's not you, and you're wrestling through it, that's okay too. The question is, what are you going to do with the season that you're in? That's what Paul wants us to think through. If it's your desire to spend time with someone else in a deep relationship that, that's in marriage, that's okay. But I would encourage you first to wrestle through your relationship with the one who made you. Don't try to, see, to win him over. Don't sort of seek to convince him that now is the time for you to be married. But wrestle with him to hear from him and allow him to form your heart, to give you peace, to give you rest, to reveal what's next. The second thing that we need to remember is not all singleness is by God's design. And I recognize that that might seem contradictory to what I just said, but we, we have to recognize this. While God certainly has power over all things, God has given us some free will. He's given us opportunity to go around in the world, and oftentimes that can lead to a mess. And that can lead to relational brokenness. People get divorced for all sorts of reasons. Some people might have to flee unhealthy or abusive relationships for their safety. And there's times where, through all of these things, our lives won't align with God's design. And because of that, because of our sin or the sin of someone else, relationships are fractured. The question in those moments then, though, is still, how do we live as followers of Jesus? How do we live in light of that? We've done other teaching, and I could point to you too. Uh, well, what does our church sort of teach on divorce and relational reconciliation or not? And, and if you want, you can come talk to me about that, and happy to point you to some resources. But for this, the, the question still remains, as it is to do with a season of singleness then, perhaps. What do you do? What do I do when I'm in this spot, whether it was my plan or not? Well, as it should be the case for all of us, we should seek what God's desire is, seeking his kingdom first, seeking his glory, even in the midst of our mess. And one of the beautiful things about that is Jesus' kindness in our brokenness. Lisa shared that in her story, and I think it's an incredibly powerful thing. When she was willing to explore some of the, the, the most difficult parts of her life, that's when Jesus met her in the middle. And Jesus does that time and time again in all of our lives. And so there is something beautiful that can be found even in the hardship that's caused by sin. There's this promise that we see in Scripture that God will work together all things for the good of those who love him. It's the good things and the bad. And we need to remember that. And we need to cling to the promise that we see that, G that God delivers on his promise by, by seeing what Jesus has done on the cross. That he will make relational wholeness with him even in anger and a state of being enemies with him. And so God can do that too in whatever relational mess you're in. Another thing we need to remember is that our value is not tied to our relational status. Your relational status is not determined by your value, and neither does your value get determined by your relational status. We need to hear that again. 
Our relational status isn't determined by our value, and our value is not determined by our relational status. There is a lie that is prevalent in society and in the church that if you're married, you're good enough or you're extra blessed. And to be single means anything less. That's the lie. That's the lie we believe, whether we believe it sort of cognitively and we think about it or we just believe it because that's how things go and that's the way the, the conversation leads us down in the road. That, that is just not true. Again, Jesus is the one that we should look on to find value. Jesus, in the fullness of who he was as God in the flesh, didn't go looking for a relationship to add value. He didn't need a human relationship in order to be worthy of anything. The place that Jesus' value was found was in his relationship with God. Your worth is found not in the fact, it is found in the fact that you were made in the image of God, not in the fact that you were made as a human with all sorts of different desires. That's not where the value is found. That's not where the value is fulfilled. Your value is in him. And your value is found in that God loved you so much that Jesus was willing to give his last breath on earth so that you could have relationship with him. That's where there's value. That's where there's rest. That's where there's peace. That's where there's purpose for the whole of our lives. There's a mistake we've made in thinking that our deepest aches and pains can be met in a spouse or a friend or someone else here physically right now on this earth. No, the greatest desires for intimacy to be fed, for us to feel loved, for us to feel valued, for us to feel important can only come from our relationship with the triune God. That's the only place. I think David beautifully sums it up in Psalm 139, verse 1 to 6, where he says, You have searched me, Lord. You know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too lofty for me to attain. May we come to recognize how wonderful it is that God knows us so intimately, more than anyone else, even ourselves, can really truly know who we are, what our value is, what our coming and going should look like, what the words that should come out of our mouth should be, how they should be formed and spoken, how we should live to, to really live to bring out his kingdom. It's so beautiful that he wants to know us that much he doesn't have to he chooses to come into the midst of that and to to allow us to perceive even in part how close he is whether married or single we need to recognize the beauty of who god is and our what our relationship might mean for the whole of our being in our time here on earth let me give you just a few things. First, for those who are single, a, a couple words that I would uh, hope would 
maybe encourage you and then for us uh, more fully as the church for how we can do better in in caring for those who are single within our church for those who are single i would just really truly encourage you to prioritize your faith the longing that you have as i've said is is for intimacy for closeness for proximity will never be met in someone else but it will be found in him alone it's in Jesus that we live, that we move, that we breathe, that we find hope, and that we find peace and comfort. So focus your eyes on Jesus. And as you do, you will find greater and greater beauty in him. There's more beauty in who Jesus is than we can possibly know upon this earth until we're fully in his presence. And even then, I think we're going to learn it for eternity more. But it's when we can focus our eyes on Jesus that all the longings of this world begin to fade. Yes, they may still be there. You may still have desires. You may still feel convicted to pursue relationship or not. But, but as you find that connection with Jesus, you will find something that will satisfy so much more than another person. And then I would encourage you to use that that connection with Jesus. Use what God, this time of singleness that God's given you to be a gift for others. The Christian life that we're called to live is never for ourselves. It's always meant to be lived for the other, for God's glory and for those around us. And so use your time, your resources, the energy that you've been afforded to pour into this. We should all be doing this, married or, or single, but... If you're single, consider this an opportunity to use what Paul has called this gift. To build up God's kingdom, his family. When you're in a season where perhaps your time is less divided and you're just like your mind. And bless God's family in a unique way and allow that to speak life into you. Now for us as a church community, there's stuff that we need to be aware of too. Whether we're single or married and the first one is not we need to be careful not to make someone feel like they're less because they're single lisa uh referenced this but uh, i was thinking about this as i wrote i, I was thinking about how sometimes we have uh that first interaction with someone uh, and we try to define who someone is what are the questions we ask what's your job are you married do you have kids what a lousy way to give someone value. What a lousy way to define who someone is. That doesn't actually help you know them. It might give you some, some information about them, but that's not really seeing someone for who they are and what their worth is. You know, we ask someone, oh, are you married? And then they say no, and then we go, well, sorry, or, oh, what, what, you know, why not? I can't believe someone wouldn't marry you. You know, that, that seems maybe like our first offense is to be non-offensive, but really we're not helping anything. Those things are meant well, but rarely do they actually address the other in a way that's meaningful. Consider asking someone about things that are of value. What are you passionate about? What do you love to do? What are your most meaningful relationships? Those types of questions can, can, can cut to some of the roots of the same things that we're asking without asking the superficial questions that might belittle another. 
Another thing to do is, is, that, is to remember how we use our language when we invite other people in. I heard someone share with me that um, who's, who's recently single, and they, they shared that, you know, someone just said, oh, I guess we have room for one extra person. Wasn't meant, the person wasn't meaning to be a jerk, right? That, that wasn't the intent, but how that can come across is so belittling. We need to think about our language. Think about our words. Think about the other's worth as we relate to them. In every relationship that we have with another, it's not that they're an extra piece. They're a person who's been divinely made and gifted by God to be in relationship with us, especially when we're talking about being in the church. There's no extra pieces in this place. There's no one who's missing their couple. There's people of infinite worth who have been brought to be part of us. For those of you who are parents of single children, you need to hear this not just about the church, but about your relationship with your kids. Consider the questions that you ask your kids when they come home from school or when you haven't seen them in a while. Oh, have you met anybody recently? Oh, how's that relationship going? Right? What, are, what are we saying to that person? Have you found that other thing that you're missing? Have you found your worth? The language we use, even in talking with our family, can, can radically define someone or hurt someone. You have better things to say to your children. You have deeper questions to ask them as they follow Jesus or don't. Let's be careful how we do these things to not make people feel other, like others. Pray for church members who are single. I had to like kind of do an inventory of how I pray a little bit and what comes to mind. And oftentimes the things that come to mind are the prayer requests for, you know, marriages that are struggling, other people who are struggling with their kids. And, 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 and if I'm not careful, it could easily roll away from considering those who are single. And I'm not saying pray for them and saying, I'm going to pray for you to find your one. No, that's not, again, at all what gives that person value. I, don't, I mean, what we need to do is we need to consider those who are single and consider what they're actually going through, what's important to them, what they're wrestling through. We need to ask them and invite them to speak, and we need to respond by praying. Pray for everyone within the church. And that leads me to sort of the final thing, which might be this thing where you say, well, I don't know many singles within our church. And you know what, that is something that is sadly so common within the church. Sometimes it's because we have this wrong notion of thinking, and we go, well, something must be wrong with that person if they're still by themselves. That's wrong. But that thinking, even if not articulated, often leads to how we react towards others. Those in couples often seek other couples. That's, that's because of this lie that we've lived, and we, we pursue that. Sadly, because of the way we live, we, we don't actually welcome singles in. And so while a single might come into this room, they may feel just as lonely as they do anywhere else if they were at home alone. We can be physically seen by someone without never really being seen. And so I'd encourage you, invite those who are single into your home. Invite them to be a part of your life. 
Now, don't do it in a weird way. Don't like go after service this morning and like hone in on all the single folks that you've never talked to and beeline to them and be like, come on over for lunch. No, I mean, be genuine. As the Holy Spirit prompts, look for opportunities to welcome people into their home. Yeah, in Sam Albury's book, Seven Myths and Singleness, he, he, he tells a powerful story of how um, someone gave him a key to their home. It's actually a woman named Rosaria Butterfield who, who wrote a book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And she put her money where her mouth was. She actually met this gentleman on the speaking circuit and she saw that he was single and he often traveled through her city. And she said, I want you to know you have a place in our home. So here's the key. Come on over whenever you want. We'll make a bed. We'll put on the suit. You can come and be part of our family. It's not hard. There's opportunities aplenty, both within and outside of our church. Because every single person is of infinite value, and our lives would be better by getting to know more. And so as we contemplate on these things, I know that we're going to struggle in a number of ways. There's rewriting that has to happen in our mind to get rid of the lies. There's an effort that needs to be put in by everyone in the church to live a more full picture of what it means to live in the kingdom of God where everyone is of equal worth. But as we struggle to understand, as we struggle to feel included or be inclusive, if we struggle through singleness or a fear of singleness, no matter what we do, let us remind ourselves that the one who can answer every question and every concern is always with us. And so let's take time and let's turn to him. And I just want to offer some time. We're just going to take a moment of silence and just feel free to reflect on, on what you need to wrestle through as we've heard this word and, and just give that to God. Ask him for his wisdom and his understanding. Ask him perhaps to define your worth. Ask him to, to give you a clear focus of what he longs for your life. And then let me pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, I recognize it's not easy for everybody to receive. But Lord God, we trust in how good it is. And I'm even reminded of about six years ago when I had to come back up on this stage after saying in a message that, that it was, we were blessed to be married. And Lord, that I had to repent of that publicly. And Lord God, I continue to do that same thing here today. Lord God, when, whenever we as the church have failed and in making anyone feel of, of equal value. Lord God, we have done wrong, and so we ask that you would forgive us for that. I say you'd forgive me of that, that you'd forgive this whole church. Lord God, we are just so thankful for every person who you have made a part of our church family. I'm so thankful for everyone who you have designed intentionally and given your breath, your worth, and your image God, I thank you that you've brought everyone with some gift to bring to the church. And I don't just mean singleness. I mean just all of who they are. All of who you are creating them to be. And Lord God, we just pray that as a church, we would defy the stereotypes of not seeing people. That we would defy the lies that to be married or in relationship is to be at war. 
We pray that we would embrace the truth of who you are. Jesus, we thank you that you came single. That you lived your life upon this earth for the sacrifice of all sin. So that we could all be part of your church. That we could be in relationship with you. And Lord God, will we see that in one another. No matter where we're at. Would we open our homes? Would we open our lives? But Lord, first, would we open our eyes? Would we open our ears to hear stories? Lord, I pray you'd give those who are single a, a voice to speak, to share their stories, as Lisa has done today. And Lord, we, we pray that as more of that goes, we, we just see how you are at work, Lord. Lord, I pray that every person who's single here today would, would know their worth in you, that they would find intimacy and relationship found in the depth of who you are. Lord God, I pray for every married person that we too would not try to define our lives or who we are by the person we are married to, by the person we are in relationship with. Lord, they'll fail us. We know that. And so we turn to you. And God, I pray that we would all offer all of who we are to you to be used by you. Lord, move in and through every life within this church and help us just to embrace more of who you are. We thank you, Jesus, for your truth. And now as we respond to you, I pray that you would help us focus on how our lives can be built around you. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.